Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Good morning, everybody. This is Mega Brands. This is Eric Clark. Uh, It is Tuesday, January 11th, about uh, 8.15 in the morning Pacific time. And uh, our conversation today is going to be a fun one because we're going to talk about the global consumer. And it's not just me blabbing on about the consumer. Um, We actually have uh, a repeat guest, uh, Sharif Farha of Safe House Capital. Uh, He is a global consumer portfolio manager. He's in Dubai. And we do a lot of the same things. Uh, In many ways, we do things very similar, but we also have much different uh, uh, names in the portfolio with some with some overlap. So we're going to maybe talk about some of the overlap things that we both like. And there's a bunch of names in here that I'm very intrigued about. Uh, and then obviously we 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 can't not talk about this persistent um, bashing of anything that has any growth, even though most of the highest quality growth stocks are now cheaper and have better growth characteristics than the popular defensive and value stocks, which I find interesting. You know, when Google is now cheaper than Procter & Gamble, um, it makes me really intrigued by this crazy market that we have. So happy new year, man, what's happening? Eric, thanks for having me. Um, For all of those who don't know, it's actually 8.15 PM where I am um, in Dubai and um, you know, Eric and I, we kind of go back now, and uh, we did our last episode together. I think it might have been a year ago, uh, probably in the middle of COVID. And uh, you know, it's good to be back. It's good to chat consumer with a fellow consumer respect investor who I, you know, have a lot of respect for. And so, yeah, I'm excited to be here. You know, obviously, growth. Uh, is it fair to say that you have a growth bias? Yes, I would probably say. Today, it's around 60-40, and if you look at the portfolio, 60% growth, uh, historically higher. Um, and, you know, we're, we try to run a balanced portfolio. Usually, I don't pay attention to how much growth or value I have, but in this environment, you know, you're forced to kind of take a step back and just make sure you're, you're not overly exposed to a certain style factor. As you know, growth has been a, a troubled place for the past, I think, three, four, even six months. Um, so yeah, no, uh, right now we are biased growth. We're still majority of the boom growth. Okay. I mean, listen, we, you know, I, I just wrote my, um, my annual letter and I just recorded a podcast and put that out there and we'll, we'll put the, um, we'll put the annual letter on the global brands matter website as well. And one of the things that I talked about was, You know, in hindsight, who would have thought the second year of the pandemic, more of a recovery year, would have been harder than navigating through a pandemic. But I guess in hindsight, if I think about it, you know, you have a global pandemic, 
the government, all governments all around the world create, you know, crazy policies and restrictions. And so it's kind of easy to know who to avoid and who to, who, you know, how consumers will spend, how they're forced to, to be spending, and then who the beneficiaries of that are. So a lot of money went to a very few group of names and those returns were terrific when the Fed started to, to really kind of uh, print and the Congress here, you know, sent money to everybody just for sitting on their butts. Like all, all of this inflation and supply chain issues and wage pressure and port cloggings, all of that is from policy, right? So, so the Fed trying to raise interest rates to deal with inflation that isn't normal inflation, it's policy-driven, man-made inflation, that's going to be really interesting in 2022. But, you know, last year was a difficult period of time for many growth investors because growth got, got you know, the growth expectations, the reality of growth and earnings and valuations got pulled so far forward because of 2020 that there was a big give back in 2021. And so, you know, I certainly underperformed the market. We, we were up about 15 last year. So that was, that was fine. You know, I, I look at it like the market does, you know, nine to 10% on average a year. We were up 15 in, a, in arguably one of the hardest markets I've ever traded. So, so that's a success, even though when people look on the surface, they think, gosh, it was super easy. All you had to do is buy an index and you were up 28 to 30%. What's wrong with you? Are you stupid? But the reality is it was a very difficult year, lots of big drawdowns in growth stocks. So let's, let's take a look at you know, some of the names that you have that are similar to us. And then I'll, you know, there's a few in here that are very interesting. So let's talk about RH. It's the biggest position uh, in both of our portfolios, if, if memory serves me, is that correct? Yeah, correct, correct. Great company. Uh, we've been shareholders, you know, RH, um, you know, when Warren Buffett disclosed, I don't know if you remember, it was probably in late 2019, Warren Buffett disclosed that he had, a, Berkshire had a position in it. And I was like, Berkshire has a position in this high-end furniture company that I, you know, when I was living in New York, uh, I, I lived in the U.S. for 10 years and mostly in New York City. And, you know, people spend money on their furniture there, even though they have small apartments. And so I'd never thought of it as, as this, you know, super high-end brand with crazy customer loyalty. And I think you know that 95% of their customers are members to the rewards program, which they pay like a couple hundred bucks a year. And so as I look deeper, you know, I thought, you know, a great business, very high short interest for some reason, couldn't figure out why, you know, um, we can chat about that because I know you have, you have some views about that. Um, but, you know, Doug Deeper felt, you know, felt that the real estate transformation play was great. The brand resonated well with consumers. And reality is it's the only luxury retailer in furniture at scale. And so it checked a lot of boxes. And lastly, the, the, most, important, the most important piece for the story uh, is Gary Friedman, the CEO. I mean, Gary is undoubtedly one of the best CEOs I've come across in the consumer universe because he can build brands. He knows how to grow them. He knows how to allocate capital. And the result is a stock that has been a multi-vagger um, and that coming you know, into COVID went from around $200 to, I think it dropped to $50 at one point. It was trading at six times earnings. And now it's, uh, you know, close to a $500 stock, even though it was at, seven, at close to 700 at one point. So, you know, we, we love RH. We think the, it is only the beginning. We think RH is, you know, as you know, they're expanding internationally in the coming six months to a year. And if they execute successfully in their first international market, then you're going to have everybody on the street saying, okay, you know what, how big is the total addressable market internationally? How much can they grow? And in my opinion, you know, this could, even at these levels, this could be a double, triple from here. Yeah. I mean, we, listen, it, it's never pain. It's never, it never feels good to see a big holding have such a drawdown every single day. And, and it, it literally, the, the, the smash in the growth stocks, regardless, I get the, the smashing of the super expensive, profitless businesses. I get all that, right? We, we have very little of that in our portfolios. And, and, and the ones that we do have, like an Airbnb, 
I, I think that's just the beginning of a major change in their in their operating metrics for the better. So I, I don't think they're going to be profitless for very long. But it, it's it's clear that this is a almost like a macro trade, right? If you are in the growth basket, and I don't even care what your multiple is at this point, because because the multiple on RH really isn't very expensive at all. You're trading what what three times sales, maybe not even that. So so the market either either believes that that this whole lift, and it has been a lift, 2020. I mean, I look back at quarterly revenues for five years. And I was actually more surprised that there were these major, these little step ups and, and there's a lot of volatility in their quarterly earnings. And then obviously you had 2021 be a breakout year in revenues. And so the market is saying that that is not sustainable, right? Because otherwise I can't figure out why you would want to sell RH. I get why you're selling 10, 20, 30, 40 times sales. But when you're talking about something that's going to do almost four billion in sales and has an eleven billion market cap, that's really not expensive. And then people will say, "Well, it's in it's in retail, it's in lower margin." No, I mean, RH has some technology stock metrics, and people will say, yeah. well, "Maybe that's not sustainable." And, and that I'm not sure because I don't think they are going after the mass market. I think they're going after a higher market. Now, personally, I think they should be going after more of a mass market because the financing allows the average family to be able to buy great RH furniture. But just so, so talk to me about RH with, with what you see from here. For, forget about the fact that it's been a growth stock and people hate growth stocks now. You know, where do you see, they have this international expansion. What drives the stock you know, 2X or 3X from here, you know, some of your assumptions, those, those would be great. I sure. would love that. Sure. So, you know, before, before I jump into that, I, I just want to kind of shed some light on what I think the bear case for RH. I'm not, obviously I'm super bullish. It's the largest position in my fund and, and yours. So, but from the bear case perspective, unfortunately, historically, RH has been something that has been sensitive to stock price movements. What I mean by, what I mean by that is if the market were to fall 10, 20%, everyone thinks, you know what? All their customers are high net worth individuals or millionaires, let's call it. And therefore they're exposed to the markets. And if markets fall down, they put off purchasing decisions. So I think that was the restoration hardware of five years ago. I think the restoration hardware of today has significant pricing power and Secondly, I think the other bear argument is that higher rates may end up slow, slowing the housing market. Which, you know, it could it could slow the housing market. It could. I don't know. I'm not a macro specialist, but the reality is, is there's so much white space for the company that I think it will still grow. And then, so what do I think? How do I envision? Uh, let's call it a base case for this company. So first of all, as you know, they have around. I think it's around 80 to 90 galleries in the U.S. Uh, stores, of which they're transforming old, inefficiently run, poor location stores to higher-end architectural masterpieces, standalone, beautiful stores. Um, and you know, to give you an anecdote, and the store in New York City does 100 million dollars in revenue a year. I mean, that's one store. So if they continue to play out this business, we believe we, we if they continue to play this playbook out, we believe profits alone can grow around 50%. That's just on that side. Around how much percent? You, you around 50, 50%. Okay. And so, you know, it's one, one piece of the pie. The other piece of the pie is that people should not underestimate pricing power, the pricing power of the company. Let me give you an example. Um, today, RH, if I'm not mistaken, charges every single customer, uh, every single rewards customer $200 a year in uh, subscription. What that gets you is 20% discounts on furniture. So they've said that 95% of their customers are subscribed to that. What I think last quarter they announced they're going to be increasing that price. So let's say you go from $200 a year to $300 a year. That incremental 100 on about half a million customers is 50 million straight bottom line. And that's significant. That's just another small little cherry icing on the cake. 
Thirdly is international expansion. Now, I, I agree with you that RH should consider going more mass appeal, but the reality is when you listen to Gary speak on the on the conference calls about how he wants to be the Hermes of, um, of uh, you know, furniture, I, I don't see that happening. Now, what do I think RH is? People tell me, oh, you know, RH is a great furniture company. I actually don't think RH is a furniture company. I think RH is a lifestyle company. They're getting into boutique hotels where they're going to have 10, 15 room hotels, which might not be a great business, but Gary's not looking at it to make money. He's looking at it as, you know what? Every single hotel room is going to have RH furniture. Eric's going to come. He's going to take a room in our hotel. He's going to check in. He's going to see this amazing bed. He's going to be like, wow, this is comfortable. Wow, look at this couch. Look at all this furniture. It's a marketing tool. And so that's, and then they're doing, they're doing jets, they're doing yachts, they're doing chalets in Aspen. I mean, so for me, I think of it as a lifestyle company. And another thing which they're starting to do is one of the things Gary said, which stuck out to me, hopefully I have this problem one day, which is rich people don't like to waste time. And he says, you know, when I bought my house in Beverly Hills, it took me three years to get, get the keys because I had to furnish it. I had to change all this stuff and I got it out and blah, blah, blah. He's like, so what they're doing is they're parting, partnering with real estate developers or home developers to create turnkey houses for the ultra rich. And so if they succeed in that, there's a massive market there as well. And it's very hard to quantify you know, what the value could be there. And lastly, as we just spoke about, Eric, international expansion. Um, international expansion is massive. I mean, I can tell you being based in the Middle East, being based in Dubai, you know, there's um, a handful of high-end companies. One is called Roche Beauvoir. I don't know if you know it. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and honestly, they don't compare to ours. No, they don't come like close to ours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But reality is, people here or people in Europe, they don't have that many options. And if they do, they're going to be boutique furniture. So they'll go in, they'll buy only a couch from the store, but they can't get a bed there or get um, outdoor furniture. You know, there's no large solution and so i think we're gonna have to see how they execute in the uk their first store which uh, i think they're getting an old castle and, and turning that around and that's going to be amazing so i look at that and then i look at the company and say okay let's look at it from a cash perspective today the company has around 700 million in net debt um, that's excluding leases and that's a 10 billion dollar market cap in a couple of quarters the company will be debt free and the company does around, let's say, a billion dollars, if I'm not mistaken, in um, EBITDA. So Gary is the type who doesn't want to be storing cash. So either it's coming back to you in a special dividend, either it's coming back to you in share buybacks, or maybe an acquisition, but I don't think they're going to make any large-scale acquisitions. So you know for, for certain that Gary likes to run, within the history at least, he likes to run his business at around one to two times net debt EBITDA, which means he's got to spend a billion to $2 billion. Now, does he buy back stock? He can easily buy back today with a billion dollars, 10% of the market cap. Um, so that's also an important point for me. And that's why I think the risk reward is attractive because on the risk side, if let's say RH falls 20, 30% from where it is today, it's a $7 billion company, it's probably going to be trading around 14 times earnings. What would stop Gary from buying back 25, 30% of the company overnight? He's done it in the past. And so that's one of the key wild cards to this company is an amazing CEO who's also a great capital allocator. I went on for a lot, but I wanted to give you kind of all angles of how we're looking at things. But that's really the reason we love the company is because we believe it's got an attractive risk reward. And we believe that still many people don't own it. It's still relatively under the radar. None of my friends at large funds have even looked at it. No, no, I, I, I am a little frustrated at that. They, I don't think, one, they don't care, right? They're playing their own game and they frankly could care less. If you don't like the way they're playing, then you can sell the stock. That's the way they view things, good, bad, or indifferent. But the, the float, you know, right now, last I checked, the short interest is like 15 or 16%. And you have a very thin float to begin with. So the thing trades 400,000 shares a day or something. So so they are losing the ability to have much more long, you know, long tail clients simply because big funds can't buy enough to make it worthwhile. 
And that's, you know, if they were, if they were to split the stock to widen the, the, the share, you know, the, the outstanding shares, then you would have a lot more buying interest, I'm guessing, in the name. So, so that, but they, you know, they believe what they're doing is going to be very valuable. Gary owns, what does he own? 20% of the stock, something like yeah, that. Yeah, around there. Yeah. So, so, you know, unfortunately, it's a model that's completely never been done. He keeps bolting on new things to that model. Analysts have no idea, aside from the hedge eye analyst, Brian McGough, who I think is a complete stud, most analysts still don't understand what to do with this stock, right? <laughs> They're all yeah. sitting around, you know, let's get, let's say a six or $700 price target, which is where it was. And because they can't figure out there, there's no comp for what they're doing. And if there's no comp, then there's no ability to, you know, unless it's just fiction in an Excel spreadsheet. So, so again, there's, there's lots of reasons why the street doesn't own it in the way that they probably should, but I, I'm a believer. There's certainly a key man risk. I mean, the biggest risk to me is, you know, is Gary yeah. and, and, and his, if he gets hit by a bus or, you know, has, you know, let's say he's a playboy, you know, there's any, <laughs> any number of things that Gary could do to screw this up. So I yeah, think have a higher risk profile, but the stock <laughs> is not expensive. It's not deep value, but it's, I, it's, in a, it's in the growth basket because it's a grower, but it's certainly not a growth valuation in, by any means. So agreed, agreed 100%. And, I, and I would love to buy more, you know, down here. Um, Same. Let, let's talk about um, how long has Amazon been a persistent uh, stock in the portfolio? Amazon has been a persistent stock for us. Um, so we got lucky when, uh, you know, in the middle of the pandemic in, uh, in March, May, uh, we, we hadn't had Amazon. That's when we, we actually thought it was cheap. We never actually said, you know what, it's going to be the company that's going to come out of this the strongest. So there's a bit of luck involved there, obviously. We just love the business and we said, we'd love to buy it at this price. It hit that price. We took the position and we've been a shareholder since. And reality is it didn't really do much in uh, 2021. So it hasn't been a huge winner for us. Yes, we're in the money, but the reality is, is it was not, it, we didn't get the Amazon-like returns that uh, you know people got in the last five years. But yeah, we like Amazon. We think it's, it's a great company. Um, we think, you know, within, within the large cap technology companies, it's one of our favorites, um, you know, but it might pull back because of what's happening. It's hard to tell, but, you know, we're not in the business of, of trading you and I, we're in the business of, of, you know, buying the best businesses at the best prices and letting them do the work for us. Right. So that's right. we're looking at Amazon. I mean, listen, we're, we, they are spending like drunken sailors, particularly on, on staff. I mean, I don't love that, that part of the business is becoming so asset heavy, but you know, it's, it's a logistics company and, and nobody knows exactly what they're going to do with that logistics, but um, we are, they're in massive spending mode. There will be a quarter, maybe not this quarter, maybe next quarter. I don't know when there's going to be a quarter when that free cash flow is going to go vertical again. And yeah. the profitability and the engine there is going to turn on again. And, and the market has turned away from that business because they're in their profit, you know, they're in their grow fast, spend a lot of money mode. And the, and that stock tends to underperform when that happens. And then when they turn that profitability engine on again and and growth ramps up from all their initiatives, then the stock gets a new leg. So I, I'm going to keep adding to that one while it's sleeping it is a little bit yeah. frustrating, but I, I, I do believe that that thing has plenty, plenty of yeah, room to go exactly. on the upside. And it's not expensive. I, people use PE multiple and I, I got into it with somebody on Twitter the other day. And I'm like, I've never once used PE, rightly or wrongly. Some people say I'm an idiot. I'm fine with that. I've never used PE in my analysis because the E can be completely manipulated. So if the E can be manipulated, how, how can I lean on a PE multiple? You know, yeah. price to sales, price to free cash flow. Those those are things that are a little more intriguing to me than a than a PE multiple. And price to sales, the stock's not expensive at all. Exactly. And to your point, Eric, you know, when you're buying great companies, time is your friend. You know that the longer you hold it, the more likely it is for you to make more money or make money. 
And so I think that's that's the case with Amazon. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm in the same camp as you, to be honest. Um, I don't look at it as an, on an earnings multiple, I look at it on, on the sales multiple and it's, it is cheap. Let's talk about China because China last year was dreadful. All of these actions by the PRC were completely counterintuitive from a capitalism, business formation, production, uh, you know, perspective. And and I have my own personal beliefs on what it is that that Xi is trying to do in China. But I would love to know. You have Alibaba in here. You have Tencent. You have Tencent Music. Um, yeah. And and I, there may be some other Chinese names that I don't recognize in here. So what's your view on China now after we've had a massive drawdown there? And how are you investing in there? Because uh, like we talked about earlier, I. If I'm just going to put on my chart hat, the KWeb ETF is kind of a proxy for China Internet. That that thing looks pretty bombed out and interesting to me. I haven't added any China exposure back, but I'm curious your thoughts on China. Sure. So I just want to give you a quick background. Um, in 2021, we had about a third of the fund in China. In hindsight, I mean, you know, we underestimated country risk. I wouldn't say it was company risk. I would say we underestimated country risk because we were pretty diversified across six different names. And, you know, when things like this happen with what happened in China, things move fast. Obviously you have a certain bias. You think, you know what, China's not gonna try to kill these companies. They want them to be global champions. And I still think that's the case, but China doesn't mind sacrificing cutting heads in order to get there. And cutting heads costs you money. And so we reduced our exposure. We took a lot of pain last year. It was the single largest detractor of performance for us. And you know, like I said, it was probably one of the best learning experiences, which is when you're investing in emerging markets, never underestimate country risk. Um, and so going forward, you know, we have over 10% of the fund in China across the three names that you mentioned. And, and the reason we've kept something there in China is because we genuinely think, first of all, valuation is favorable. Um, even if you were to cut earnings or you know, cut sales or earnings across these names by 30%. Many of them uh, are, you know, are still in our net cash. Many of them will still trade below, you know, 20 times earnings, still trade on a five-year low multiple. And so valuations on our side. Now, the question is, what is the government going to do and how much have they done already? I don't know. Nobody knows what the government's going to do. I mean, Tiger Global was one of the largest investors in these online education companies. And I mean, those things fell 90% in, in a matter of days. And so even the smartest guys with the most resources and the largest assets under management didn't see it coming. No matter what anyone tells you, because I heard a lot of people say, yeah, I saw it coming. The reality is nobody saw it coming and nobody saw the, the magnitude of what was coming. Now, going forward, you know, we, we think there's a unique opportunity in China today. You still have to tread carefully and therefore size your bets accordingly. Um, we think that capital flows, if you know, Hong Kong was, one of the only down markets in 2021 versus everything else was almost up. Year to date, Hong Kong is, uh, you know, these HK stocks, Alibaba, Tencent, they're, they're up year to date while the market's taking a hit. And I think that's because there's a capital rotation happening. People are saying, you know what, I'm going to move from these maybe more expensive technology stocks that outperformed over the last five years into cheaper technology stocks that have underperformed the last five years. And you know what, I haven't heard a major headline in a month. That's probably a good thing. And so we're seeing that happen. Um, to be frank with you, excluding Tencent Music, be, uh, because they don't have a Hong Kong listing, we don't own any US ADRs. Just because I don't want to wake up one day with, you know, the SEC, um, like the head of the SEC saying, saying more news or other things. Reality is they move together, but we're owning the local Hong Kong name. So we think China at this point is, a, is a, an attractive risk reward but it's not a home run. Therefore, you have to size your bets accordingly. Yeah, <clears throat> I have, I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to ignore the second largest economy who wants their own brands to be dominant. My problem with them is they are doing everything they can to keep their dominant domestic brands from ever being dominant global brands. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the mega brands business. 80% of the fund is always in, you know, mega brands, kind of the leaders. They don't always have to be global. I mean, we own Home Depot and Lowe's. They're not global. But 
you know, if, if the Chinese government would start to think globally about having their champions that possibly be global champions, that would get me a lot more intrigued. You know, I just feel like they don't want, they, you know, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it because I always say dumb stuff that people always bash me. <laughs> so I'll just go ahead and do it anyway. That's my brand, I guess. But, you know, if you are Xi, you want people to understand who's in charge. And that's the government first. If you are a global champion brand, you start to get a lot of power. And when you have a lot of power, that disrupts the, the, the thesis and the interests of the government when they want to control things. So that's a struggle for me from an investment perspective, because I feel like they have these great businesses that could be so much more than they are. But the, the big hand of, of government is keeping them down. And I don't know what changes that. Maybe this is one big, you know, I'm sure you saw on Twitter, people were like, and I love a good conspiracy theory. You know, the government just wants to drive these businesses down so they can get a bunch of ownership in them and then they can let them fly again. <laughs> Who knows yeah. at this point? I, I don't know, but China does intrigue me. And we've we've chosen to play it after losing a little bit of money on Tencent and, and Alibaba. But thank God not taking that whole ride down to just yeah. invest in, in U.S. and global brands that are dominant in China. But you can see, you know, Nike's having a hard time in China. Uh, Louis Vuitton yeah. is, is still doing pretty well in China, but um, Starbucks, we're not sure yet. So, so who knows? Maybe non-China brands will become harder to navigate in China too at some point. And you know, let's face it, there's Apple, there's Starbucks, there's Nike, Louis Vuitton. There's a lot of brands that I would have to reconsider my allocations or my weights if that were the case. I just don't see it quite yet. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 funny you you draw on that analogy with between Nike and Louis Vuitton, and you know Nike they actually have competitors like Anta Sports and, and and local competitors, but a company like Louis Vuitton, unfortunately, they can't they can never build a business like that ever because it's a hundred year old heritage leather goods, and then you've got a bunch of brands, and so that's actually relatively insulated. Where it gets tricky for Louis Vuitton is this whole common prosperity thing of. You know, you don't want the rich people to to look rich and make the middle to low income look feel bad. So that could get tricky. Um, and the problem is, is because Chinese are not traveling as much as they as they've used to. I mean, when I go to Paris, when I go to Milan, when I go to London, and just you know, in, in the summer, you know, you go to Louis Vuitton, and I, I kid you not, in the middle of Milan, it's ninety percent Chinese. In the middle of Paris, ninety percent Chinese because the prices there are cheaper. And they don't pay that. They, they can get back their VAT tax. So at the airport, they get back money. And uh, that's not happening right now. So you have to buy in China. But the Chinese don't know. Everyone's watching you there. So it's China's look, China's is, I've never been. Um, I don't I can't say I'm excited and I would like to go, to be honest. There's other places I'd rather visit first. But um, it, it is a large global consumer economy. And so for us, it's like, we always kind of have to keep an eye on it just because it's huge. Yeah, absolutely. I, there, there's a name on here that I, I, I have been intrigued by the video games and I'm not a gamer. So this isn't a passion of mine. I don't know that my demographic is really who they're, who they're, who they're searching for. Is Activision, has that been a name you've had for a while or is that a fairly new one? Cause I, it, you know, after seeing all these drawdowns, I've certainly gotten intrigued. My issue with the gaming stocks is that, I mean, Activision and all of them, they've, they kind of have a, this massive base of customers, but I don't see a lot of new customers coming in. So how do you gauge the gaming industry from a bringing new in? You know, the, the good news is demographics play in their favor because they, they do have millennials, they do have Gen Z, they're much, they, they, they skew lower in age. And at least in the US and Asia, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of you know, sub 40 year old gamers that they are constantly trying to monetize. So talk to me about the, the gaming and particularly in Activision. Yeah, so you know, gaming as an entire 
uh, subsector, if you look at our exposure, we, we play gaming through Tencent, Sony, Activision, essentially. And I mean, Facebook, it's not really gaming, but they're getting there. They will eventually get there, especially with the, with the Oculus. So we are super bullish on gaming. To be frank with you, we owned Activision um, through COVID. We exited it at uh, the first quarter of 2021 at a, at a pretty decent price. We got back in recently because of a couple of reasons. It's an opportunistic position. It's not a core hold from where today. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw the sex scandal with um, the, the CEO. Uh, there was a bunch of issues. They delayed, they delayed some game launches. Then the CEO uh, was basically, they had, someone had been either raped or assaulted on, in the office reported to the CEO, the CEO didn't take it to the board. Um, and there's rumors that the CEO might step down. And because people are boycotting the company, employees are not turning up, signing petitions. The business is net cash. It's still the largest gaming company after Tencent um, in size. It's got a great content library. And, uh, you know, games like that. Looks like you switched from. Uh, can you hear me now? I can hear you. Yeah, you switched oh, from the to the laptop. Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, with Activision, we we think the CEO might step down. That could be a catalyst for the stock, but it's at a five-year low valuation multiple and it's sitting on a lot of cash. So we would not be surprised at their next quarterly earnings if they announce a share buyback. And so either of those would lift the stock. We're not looking to you know get rich off. The this company, we're thinking there's around 25% upside, 20% upside from here, and it's more of an opportunity. But we, yes, we we are long gaming. We love we love we love Sony. We think Sony is a great way to play gaming and entertainment, frankly, music and uh, film. And that's been a much steadier stock too. I mean, you you got the semiconductor business there, you got the media business, you have the music business. So you know, shame on me for not having Sony. That was we had it we had it for a while and made some good money on it and and we got out of it and it's actually been a pretty pretty steady eddy performer because yeah. it's not cheap and it's it's got good steady growth metrics exactly it's one we've had since honestly since the inception of the fund <clears throat> what uh I, we don't own it anymore i got frustrated with the with the 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 lack of price momentum that you know that it could it could continuously have with spotify i mean I love my Spotify. They could double my subscription price and I wouldn't even blink because I have thousands of songs and tons of playlists and it's my literal go-to every single day. But the stock is just, man, every time it seems to get some momentum, it fails. And, you know, the, the, the model of having to, you know, pay out such a big chunk of your revenue back to the labels Maybe that's why you own Universal Music. Let's talk a little bit yeah. about Universal and, and Spotify. So it's funny. I I don't know who's going to win the battle. Meaning, you know, on the content side, Universal, uh, Warner Music, and Sony control 70% of all music content out there. And as you rightfully mentioned, you know, Spotify pays, you know, 70% of their revenue, of, of any streaming revenues directly to these content companies. Now, the question is, do these three content companies continue to monopolize power and maintain that leadership, or do they have to eventually give more and more to the streamers as the streamers become really the single largest? And they already are, but you know, they'll eventually be 70% of, of um, Universal's revenue will come from Spotify. And so I don't know who's going to win the battle, and that's actually why I have both. But um, Spotify is a larger position for me. You know, we have about 10%. So what I tell people is I love music. Everyone in the world is going to have access to music. Everyone listens to music. Everyone can listen to music multiple times. You're not going to watch a, the same movie 30 times. You can listen to this. I've listened to songs 100 times. Right. And so... Patty Shack. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, you know, and it's the cheapest form of entertainment. So one of the things I, I would... You know, if you ever want to look at the music industry in, in, in detail, uh, Bill Ackman put out a presentation um, on Universal Music, which was, you know, very well thought out. Um, and honestly, after looking at that and doing our own work, I realized, you know what? I, I agree. It's a steady royalty business. My only concern, and this is the biggest risk, 
is every other day now I'm seeing like KKR is out, out in the market buying John Legend's music video, uh, music catalog. They just bought Bob Dylan's. Uh, someone just bought. So there's starting to be a bidding war for these kind of music libraries, which are kind of royalty businesses. And so I don't know how that's going to affect first. I don't know how it's going to affect Universal because they're going to have to overpay. If they want to, you know, uh, buy content. And I don't know how that's going to affect Spotify. You know, maybe it'll have no effect on Spotify. Maybe it's actually better because more content is spread out and therefore Spotify ends up having more bargaining power. Because of that, I own both. Right. Okay. But Spotify has been very frustrating. It, uh, we, are, we are not in the money on that one. We are, we are still uh, you know, underwater, but by a small amount. But if you look at it on an opportunity cost basis for over a year, you haven't made, you haven't made money when the market's done quite well. Yeah, it's been a big underperformance. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I love the business. I absolutely love Daniel Ek. I mean, I, it, it's, I, it's one of, the, it's probably the one stock in my brand's 200 index that I want to own the most that I just haven't lately because of all the things that we've talked about. Um, last one, we got, we only have about 10 minutes left. I want to get to Crocs because uh, Crocs is one of those businesses that just keeps performing and nobody takes them seriously. And, you know, we, we finally added, I, I remember two years ago, I pitched Crocs to my team to be at least part of the index so we could get access to it in the fund. And they were like, ah, it's Crocs. It's a, you know, rubber shoes and like completely trendless. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> the data yeah. tells me something different. So talk to me about Crocs. How long have you owned it? Yeah. Love about it. Great. So Crocs, we, we took a position in October of 2021. What we loved about it was, honestly, I started seeing it on everyone, everyone else's feet and, you know, celebrities, product collaborations. I went on StockX um, and I see Crocs that retailed for 100 bucks selling for 500 And so I was like, wow, there's really a huge following with Crocs. And I looked at the numbers and I said, you know what? Great gross margins, growing business. And my biggest concern was, is this a business, if, if you look at their numbers, you look at their revenue growth, you'll say, wow, during COVID, they killed it. The reality is during COVID, people spent less on clothes going out. They spent more on comfort. So I wanted to make sure, and I still want to make sure that that's not a trend. I don't want it to be the next Peloton. You know what I mean? Where post-COVID, no one's buying Crocs. And look, we're looking at Google Trends. We're looking at, uh, you know, kind of search history and, and, and traffic. And, you know, Google Trends, it's making new highs. And so... It's a cash generative business. They bought back a billion dollars worth of stock in 2021. They just announced a massive acquisition of a, a brand I'd never heard of called Hey Dude. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, never heard of it. They paid around two, two and a half billion dollars for it, uh, 13 times EBITDA, two and a half times sales, which is expensive, but the brand is immediate, immediately accretive in year one. They have zero, like 5% international exposure. Crocs has 30. I'm going to take them global. Uh, only 30% of their wholesale relationships overlap. So they're going to take them into all the wholesalers in America. And, um, you know, it's one of those businesses that I think, you know, they're going from a single product company. Prior to the acquisition, 70% of their sales is that typical clog. Going forward, it's going to be 40%. So they're thinking of transforming from a product business, one single product business, to really a full-fledged global brand that has multiple products that people would like. And so we like it. We think it's attractive on a valuation perspective at 13 times uh, earnings. And honestly, they've managed the supply chain bottlenecks super well. They had had no issues. You know, we were, sh we're shareholders in uh, American Eagle. We were in Gap. Gap was had a completely terrible quarter. They completely mismanaged their inventory, uh, their supply chain. Versus Crocs, they said, look, it takes us, we only need three components make a crocs clog so it's very easy for us to ramp up manufacturing so supply chain wasn't an issue even though 70 percent of their supply chain is coming out of vietnam so managed very well great business cash generative and right now so right now it's, it's in my opinion it's a steal um and it's one of the largest positions in our fund and we're actually putting out a write-up on it in, in the next week or so we're kind of going to publish our our thesis and why we think it's interesting and i'm obviously going to send that over to you as soon as it's done but we think it's a great price. We think um, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that it's being kind of thrown into the growth bucket. But the reality is we think this brand has momentum. 
I, I love it. I, I'm, I'm going to take a look at it where, you know, every December is my time to update the brands index to pull in some names that I've, that I've just seen that we're really executing and then add some new names that, you know, like a Rivian. I don't own Rivian because it was very expensive and it was such a hot IPO, but I do see the value in that business. And it, I do believe it will become a very relevant brand in the, in the EV space. So I'm, I'm watching some of these new brands, Crocs being one, because you always want to get some access to some, some new names. Um, you know, I, I, you're at 19 names, I'm at 28 names currently. And there's a few names that are, that are, you know, even Lulu, Lulu, I, I, they, I think they FOMO that acquisition of mirror. I mean, I love the mirror. My wife and I use it all the time. My daughter. Yeah. Loves it. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and, but they, one, I think they paid way too much because they, there, there probably was a, a bidding war going on at that time when people wanted to have some home fitness. Um, and I still am not sure what they are going to do with it. I did notice that they hired, I think somebody from Amazon to now run the mirror business. Because I mean, think about it. If you're sitting in front of a mirror, you could in theory get a digital imprint of your entire body 360. You could try on clothes. I mean, there's a lot you could do. You, if, if I were a trainer and I had a group of clients I could bolt on to, I could pay a fee to bolt onto that mirror and also have my clients buy the mirror and get a, you know, finder's fee for referring clients. I mean, there's a lot they can do, Yeah. but it's certainly, Lulu, I think it was yesterday or the day before they came out and said they're going to be at the lower end of guidance and the stock's expensive. It's 10 times sales uh, for yoga pants. So it's, it's been an underperformer. And I know Brian at, at Hedge Eye thinks it's a short. Uh, so, you know, th there are certainly names in the portfolio that, that I may be at least carving or trimming to look for some new ideas. So uh, I love looking. Have you looked at On Running? I have. I added that one to the index as well as Allbirds. But, uh, okay. but On's really expensive. In fact, I ordered a pair of, of, uh, of On. I love the way they look. I had to send yeah. both pairs back. They just didn't work for my feet, but I, I see the growth. I mean, people people love these shoes and the brand, so that's definitely yeah. one that's probably given Nike some angst. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, if we weren't in this environment where high value stocks are being put under pressure, it would be a big position for us. We took a position right after the IPO. Uh, we exited at, at, a, at a good gain, and and honestly, it's one of those that I'm I'm just hoping it falls below twenty nine thirty, and I. Take a, take a position again because you know there's a massive distribution story there right where not everyone has access to on maybe in the u.s but here there's only two places and this is a huge consumer economy we have every brand here right uh, there's two, only two places in, in dubai that sell on running so we have to order on farfetch um and you know farfetch is, is generally a slight premium to getting it direct to consumer from their website right. and so um you know they only have one flagship store in the u.s they have four stores in china uh, we spoke to the company. They're, they're super solid. It's just a valuation call. Yeah. Man, Sharif, we could talk all day about some of these names. There's still some names on here that I'd love to talk about. Maybe we'll do a part two to talk about some other names because I want to get, I actually want to get to Farfetch. I want to talk to you about Meta. Uh, it's hard. I actually love calling it Meta because I loathe Facebook, the, the, the actual <laughs> brand of Facebook. So I, I think it was the smartest thing they did changing their name. <laughs> I really want to dig in because it, man, it is a cheap stock and, and, and I do see the potential there. I, yeah. so I'd love to talk to you about that one. I'd love to talk to you about Mercado Libre. We used to, we own that last year and, uh, and it's obviously come down with all the expensive growth stocks and, and maybe even, you know, Casper sleep and, and there's hype beast in here too. And I don't even know that name. So maybe we should do a part two because there's a lot of names that we can get to. I would love to do that. I'd love to do that. And I would love uh, for you, you know, for you to share some of your names as well, because there's a couple like Home, uh, Home Depot and Lowe's, which have just been amazing long-term performers. And every year I'm like, okay, they're, they're done. They're too big. But then the reality is, is they're just continuously gaining share. And so I'd love to learn more about those as well. No, that, we should definitely set up a part two. Absolutely. You know, Home Depot and Lowe's just a quick, you know, the housing stocks like average 40 years old. So the, 
there's going to be a constant, consistent upgrading. I, I you know, I'm, I, I see it in my own house. I've, I've had to go to Home Depot and Lowe's like 10 times in the last month for little things. And that, that repeat business and being mostly the only game in town other than floor decor and maybe some, you know, some true value hardware store, some of the smaller ones, it just makes them very stable, predictable growers. I do worry now that comps are a little high, but again, with, with interest rates where they are still low and the housing stock being aged and in need of repair constantly and the, the tie to the home construction industry, those tend to be pretty good stable eddies and you know, Lowe's is absolute cheap. And Home Depot, I wouldn't say is cheap, but I wouldn't say is egregious given that it's, it's stable and predictable. So lots to talk about, man. Um, when, you get that, when you get that Crocs report, send it out to me. I'll send it out through Twitter and, uh, and I'll send you a copy of this so we can both send it out through Twitter and our other, our other channels. And uh, awesome. as always, it's really good to, to, to catch up with you. And Likewise, likewise, man. Thanks a lot, Eric, for your time. Thanks for organizing. Um, you know, let's keep in touch as always. And um, if you ever need anything from my side, please let me know. Absolutely. And, and your website is safehousecap.com, right? Safehousecap.com. Yeah. And, and what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is, sorry, it's, uh, I think it's Sharif Farha. Um, Sharif Farha. No, no, no dots, no exclamation, uh, no underscores. Just Sharif Farha. S H A H R I F F A R H A at Sharifhara dot uh, or no not no dot com I guess yeah yeah exactly all right buddy well thanks a lot thanks a lot it's appreciate it's it. your time so uh, we'll talk to have you some dinner. part two thanks Eric take care see you. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the dynamic brand section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the dynamic brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.